want a business like Netflix or Amazon Prime. Businesses where once a customer engages with them, it becomes automatic and a part of their lifestyle from then on. But how do you build that forever transaction? I'm Robbie Kelman-Baxter, and I have been studying subscription and membership models for nearly 20 years. In this podcast, my guests and I share the secrets and strategies of the membership economy. Join us for subscription stories, true tales from the trenches. The first wave of the membership economy was mostly digital, software, content, and services. But increasingly, we're seeing subscriptions around physical products. There are all kinds of new challenges when manufacturing comes into play, especially with the pricing model. Many companies are selling the physical product and then offering subscriptions on top of that. Examples include Peloton, where much of the value is in the subscription, but also with products like Tile, Ring, and Tesla, where the subscription is truly optional. One company that's getting a lot of attention for its innovative model is Whoop. Whoop offers a subscription-based service combining a wearable fitness tracker with software to achieve its mission of unlocking human performance. Today, I'm talking to Whoop's chief product officer, Ben Foster. Ben has literally written the book on product management along with his co-author, Rajesh Nirlikar. Build What Matters, delivering key outcomes with vision-led product management. In this wide-ranging conversation, Ben and I discuss the best metrics for tracking customer value, the unique challenges of a subscription that includes hardware and software, and why scrappiness is a key attribute of the best product managers. Ben, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks so much. So you're a longtime product manager, almost a product manager's product manager. We have worked on so many products, not just Whoops, at where you are now, but eBay, AdKimi, Webvan, Opower, Zeus, Logic, And I'm wondering, with all those experiences, what do you think make an excellent product manager? Let's just start there. Yeah, great question. For me, I would say that the role of product management is making the product successful in the market, period. And so embedded in that is understanding who your market is. Embedded in that is understanding how you can be innovative with thinking about new products and technologies that can be used to solve customer problems in brand new ways. Embedded in that is that notion of just period, find a way to make it work. There's always going to be things that get in the way. And so scrappiness is something that's really important for a great product manager. And so I think it's those combinations of being innovative and creative, being really focused on who the customer is and what problems you're trying to solve, and being scrappy so that you can kind of deal with the issues that you're going to run into along the way. Yeah. It's interesting. Scrappiness is not usually on a job description, but <laughs> I think you're right. I've found that a lot of times product management teams might be under-resourced or be given outsized expectations of kind of everything that isn't being handled by someone else, but that is critical to the product success. Mm-hmm. So I think scrappiness is a really important word. Yeah, it is. It doesn't go away as you get more senior. In fact, sometimes it even (laughs) forces you to be even more that way. (laughs) It's kind of funny. So you actually wrote a book on this topic, Build What Matters, Delivering Key Outcomes with Vision-Led Product Management. Did you talk about scrappiness there? We talk about product leadership, and we talk about how you have to sort of have this discipline and this focus around customer outcomes and customer concerns and really kind of like stay true to a vision that you have. But we also talk in sort of like the third part of the book about 
the real world. <laughs> it's really easy, I think, to kind of talk about the theory of, hey, it would be great if we had this vision and we could just go realize this vision. But the reality is like business challenges get in the way, right? You run out of funding as a startup or you've got to go make, appease investors at the right stage or there's a big competitor that gets in your way. And so I think that the way that I think about those things fitting together is that on the one hand, you want to have this vision-led approach where you can say, here's the problem that we're really focused on trying to solve for our customers. And you stay true to that and you adhere to it. But at the same time, you have buffer built into the system. You have a willingness to change course as you need to about the best way of arriving there. And I kind of like maybe separate Google Maps versus Waze. And you kind of think about the ways that you might use those two different products. Google Maps is really good for sort of saying, you know, hey, you got a big, long road trip in front of you. What's the general path that you're going to take? But it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take the exact turn-by-turn directions that were programmed out of your computer before you started up on a one-day trip. You might use Waze in the real moment when you go through a city or there's a closed road or there's traffic. And the reality is you're always having to react to the situation. It doesn't mean that you're changing your destination. That's the key to this is that you stay true to your vision about what it is that you're trying to solve for your customers. But that's where that scrappiness really kind of comes in, even at the most senior levels of product. Yeah, I like that analogy, the Waze Google Maps analogy so much because it really conveys the tension, I think, that a lot of teams feel between I have this vision, I have this forever promise that I'm making to my customers, and I'm very committed to that, but also I have to hit this number this quarter or I have to deal with somebody went on leave and I don't have enough staff right now to mm-hmm. do exactly what I want to do and I have to make a compromise. And I think what is so great about the way you describe that is that even though in the moment you might have to take a detour, you've always got your eyes on the destination mm-hmm. and you don't necessarily change direction just because there's a boulder in front of you. You make your way around it and keep going. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like if you got to take a sidestep, are you taking a sidestep that's actually helping you to get to where you aim to go? Or are you taking a sidestep that's actually impeding your progress, right? And will you look back on this and say that that was actually helpful or not? And I think that that's where that vision can really play a really important role. Yeah. So you recently, after many years of being an advisor to a whole portfolio of organizations, which actually sounds like a lot of fun... (laughs) You decided to take a full-time role at one of those organizations, which is Whoop. Can you talk a little bit about Whoop and what it was about that particular organization that made you say, you know what, maybe I'm going to jump back into the fray and run product again? It's just such an amazing company that has such an amazing brand and such an amazing promise around what it can do for customers. So I think that that was Part one that was really interesting was just the actual impact that we can have on customers to help them to be successful in their own lives with their health and their fitness. But beyond that was back in the day when I had been an advisor to Whoop, that was the time that the company hadn't yet adopted a subscription model. And we were out there selling devices and people were buying them and they were utilizing it. But the company never really got an enormous amount of traction with that model. And in the intervening years, it had switched to that subscription model. The business was really taking off. And as a result of that, the company decided to invest much more heavily into product and technology and user experience and things like that in such a way that it became a really compelling and interesting, exciting challenge for me to go pursue as a leader of product myself. So when you joined Whoop full-time, they had already, I think originally you bought the hardware, the wearable, the bracelet, the tracking device, you bought that. 
And then you had access to an app that helped you track your health, your recovery time, a bunch of different biometrics. That's right. And then over time, what was the thinking as the company moved from that to subscribe and get the hardware and the software as part of your ongoing subscription? Yeah. If you rewind the clock back to those years and you look at the wearable space, there was a dominant player at the time, which was Fitbit. And Fitbit had really laid, I think, a lot of the groundwork for the wearables industry. And they they had made it a normal, commonplace thing to do to wear a device like that, which really wasn't the case prior to that. And so at the time, you had an explosion of a bunch of different competitors that were out there building devices because they had seen a successful model around that where it became interesting to the general consumer to wear something like that and to actually monitor their health, track their steps and things along those lines. And what was interesting about Whoop was that Whoop came in at the tip top of the market. In other words, it was the most advanced wearable out there. It tracked 100 data points across several different dimensions per second, which a lot of other devices, they were never doing anything like that. And so the hardware requirements for that, the actual technical complexity of the product was such that it actually drove the price to be relatively high. And at a time when Fitbits were out there selling for $100 or down to $60 and things like that, Whoop was coming in and trying to sell a device that was at the time priced at $500. And so what happened was you naturally found that it was those very elite kind of athletes and things like that that wanted to buy the product at the time because just the price point. It's almost like the price point dictated the market rather than saying, this is the market we really want to go after. Now, how do we price the product to go make that work for them. And I think that was really the transition where we as a company had realized that given the impact that we knew that we could have on a more broad-based customer segment that was going to include but not be limited to those elite athletes, that we could provide that same kind of technology as long as we could price it in such a way that would actually work for them and work for the company at the same time. And the clear direction that was actually going to work in that case was moving to a subscription model so that the cost of entry wasn't so high and you could kind of get started for as little as $30 up front. But at the same time, there was the revenue potential for the company, as long as people were realizing the value of the product that they'd want to continue to pay for it month after month. So it was so interesting because if I were going to summarize that, you were saying we had confidence that once somebody tried it, they would love it and stay engaged. They would get good value. But that the biggest challenge to the model was getting them into the market, getting them to try it because of that $500 or so hardware purchase. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that you said that was really interesting is you said, I think a lot of people think of Whoop as, especially people who've been using Whoops for a while, that it's an elite athlete product. But it sounds like you're saying that your vision for it is much broader than just that elite community. Oh, yeah. It's already the case. When we check in with our customers and we survey them and we learn more about who they are, we realize that the majority of our customers are people who wouldn't at all classify themselves as being elite athletes. They're people who are motivated and interested in actively what we term as unlocking human performance. And human performance, we've come to realize, has a really wide array of different kinds of definitions for different people. It's a product that can be highly personalized and customized to the things that you're trying to accomplish. And for some people, their goal is to shave 10 seconds off their one mile time. And for other people, their goal is to shave 10 pounds off the scale. 
So you see a wide variety of different kinds of interests that people have. People want to live 10 years longer. And especially in the wake of COVID and things like that, I think there's just a lot of people who are really starting to pay attention to their personal health and the way that they're sleeping and the way that they're recovering and things like that. They want to have the right kinds of monitoring tools that help them to live their best possible life that they can. And I think that applies both to athletes and anybody else who cares about their overall performance, whether that's their performance in their job, their performance with their other roles in their lives as a parent or a spouse or anything like that, then they just want to do their best. And I think Whoop is a great product for that. So in order to make it appealing for that broader group of people and to make it actually something that they could afford and something that was going to work for them, that move to a subscription model was really important. But I think, Robbie, you had touched on something there that was, I think, really important, but I want to kind of double down on, which is that I've heard a lot of people reach out to me and say, it's great that we moved to a subscription model because that's why you get recurring revenue. And I've corrected them <laughs> in those cases to say, it's enabled us to get recurring revenue, but it's not what drives recurring revenue. You're really picking a big bet when you do this, right? You switch to a recurring revenue model, but that means that what if the product doesn't work for them? It means they're not paying us $500 up front. They're paying us $30 up front. And what happens if it doesn't actually accomplish what they're looking for? Then we're the ones that are out in that case. So moving to a subscription model is really more of like a gamble on yourself so that your customers don't have to gamble on you instead. And I think that that to me was a really big takeaway at the time that I was joining the company to realize, hey, what this means is that we get to invest in what the value proposition is for our customers. Because the more valuable they find the product to be, the more profitable we're going to be as a business. And so where other companies have to make this really hard trade-off, do I want to invest in things that give me more profitability for myself, or do I want to invest in those things that increase the value proposition of the company? Those two things are one and the same for a subscription-based company. And I think that's one of the great powers of being a company like that, is that you don't have to make that trade-off. And so every time you put a dollar into one direction or another, it's not like compromising what the dollar that could have otherwise been spent, either helping the company and the shareholder or the customer. That dollar actually accrues to both. Yeah, I think this is a critical point that a lot of organizations that are moving to subscription models don't fully understand that you're taking a huge risk because it's no longer enough to say, well, they bought the device and if they never use it, if they just wear it as a bracelet, that's their problem, not my problem. That's right. To if they just use it as a bracelet, they're going to cancel their subscription and we're going to actually, in your case, there are pretty high variable costs with each new subscriber, the hardware. So I have a couple of questions. One of them is, how did you build up the confidence to take that risk? Did you already know how people were using the product once they bought it, that they were falling in love, that they were using it every day? Did you have some data or was it anecdotal or did you just experiment in a small area? How did you make that transition to subscription for the complete offer? Yeah, we had plenty of data available that indicated to us that this was going to be likely a successful move. You never actually know until you do it. And it definitely was a sort of like the farm moment, I think, for the company to make that transition simply because of cash flow implications. What happens if you send all these devices out into the world and then you don't get people paying for a recurring subscription? Well, then you are actually out that money. And I think when you're a smaller scale startup, that can be a really threatening proposition. But we had a lot of data that suggested that it was going to be really effective because we had net promoter scores from our customers, right? That were really high. So we knew that people really enjoyed the product and they were getting a lot of value from it. You can run a survey, which is a product market fit survey question, which is what would be the impact to you 
if you no longer had access to this product. And depending on how painful it would be to lose it, it kind of tells you how loyal your customers actually are had that kind of data available. We had data around usage metrics of specific features, and we could see that there were people who never missed a beat. 365 straight days in their first year, they would check their recovery score every single morning. So what makes you think that they're not going to do so if you kind of like change the pricing model? If you see that that's how people are naturally behaving with your product, then it gives you a lot more confidence that this is the move that you're willing to make. But it is the case that you don't get recurring revenue because you switch to a subscription model. You get recurring revenue because you make that switch and because you deliver recurring value to your customers. And I think that that was the metric that we really needed to see was that there was a lot of triangulation to imply that we were in fact delivering a lot of value to our customers. Yeah. Really want to dig in on that. You talked early on when you were talking about your book and some of the key ideas, you talk about focus on outcomes with your customer. And Mm -hmm. when you were talking about Whoop and a more general audience, you were saying some of them want to shave 10 seconds off their mile time and others want to shave 10 pounds off the scale. Lots of different ways that your individual customers, subscribers would measure their own value that they've gained from you. You mentioned net promoter score. You talked about that Sean Ellis question around product market fit. Are there other metrics that you use to try to assess how well you're delivering on the expected outcomes for your subscribers? Yeah, there's a few that are out there. And I think one of them is a class of metrics that probably varies a lot from company to company. But What we've tried to do is we've looked at feature engagement on a daily or a very consistent basis. And you look at that at different levels of consistency. People who do this one thing versus never do it at all. Or people who do this one thing, but they do it every single day versus the people who don't do it every single day. And depending on the product, depending on the way in which you expect it to be engaged with, it might be very different in a B2B SaaS company, right? It might be very different for a non-tech company that's out there as well, where I don't think that Taco Bell should be (laughs) deciding whether somebody's enjoying tacos because they only eat there every single day out of 31 days in a month. Like That's probably not the right metric to use, but are they going once a week, right? Are they going once a month? And maybe that's an indication as to whether that's the right kind of engagement that they're looking for. So for us, because of the nature of our product, which is it's giving you metrics every single morning about the quality of your sleep, the level of recovery that you have, it's actionable during the day to understand what level of strain you should actually take on that day, et cetera. We really look at daily active user engagement metrics. And we don't just look at the wearing of the device. We don't just look at the opening of the app on your phone or the number of times per day that it's open. We look at the engagement with specific features that we know are differentiated in the market. So do you actually view the breakdown of your sleep to really better understand how you slept over the course of a given night? Do you, when you start a workout, actually open Whoop first to try to see what level of workout would be appropriate for you given the level of rest that your body actually has. These are differentiated features that we know are really valuable and are things that you wouldn't want to have to give up if you were to lose your Whoop subscription. So we pay attention to those kinds of metrics and look at how people are adopting those. And we try to measure the impact of the changes that we make on the product to see whether they're actually moving those metrics in the right direction. So that's kind of like one class of metrics. And then I think the other one is to see whether people are really excited about the product. It's one thing to see their NPS score, which is the question of how likely would you be to refer this product to a friend or a colleague or something like that, which people can rate on a zero to 10 scale. The other thing is to see what they actually do 
are they actually referring their friends? And so we look at the percentage of our customers that are referring their friends, how many people they're referring, whether those referrals are actually yielding you know, new customers for us as well. And for products that can grow virally in that way, it's a really good metric to kind of pay attention to as well. Because generally speaking, you're not going to get a referral from somebody who themselves is not really satisfied with the product. Right. That point about referral, I mean, there's a bunch of things that you've said that are critical and important for people to understand. The one about the features, knowing which features are differentiated and which features drive value for your most engaged subscribers, and then ensuring that new subscribers are also using those, sort of saying, this is how you get value from this product. If you're not using them, you're less likely to be getting value and you're more likely to leave. I think that's something that every organization needs to figure out for themselves. Which features Mm -hmm. are they? And sometimes those features aren't what I think of as acquisition or headline benefit features. The ones that you talked about, you might not be able to explain that in a landing page or Mm -hmm. an end cap, but once somebody uses it, they're like, this is the thing that is really valuable to me. Yeah. I think that's totally right. So I think that those differentiated features for adoption of your product, for deriving of value once you already are a customer. Because I think the way that you need to think about a subscription business is that you're not just selling somebody initially. Every single month that goes by or every year that goes by, whatever the billing frequency is for your product, you're reselling the product every single time, right? You're trying to convince them not to stop paying you for the value that you're delivering. And so kind of keep that in mind that that's what that forever transaction really looks like, right? So I think there's that. And then the other thing that I would encourage companies to take a look at when they're trying to identify which those few features are that really matter is not just those things that are highly differentiated or valuable for a subscription, but look at those things that actually correlate most closely with retention. So you might look at a feature and say, well, we think that this is really high value, but if at the end of the day, people who use it or don't use it either way, they're not either more or less likely to retain with you as a customer then it's kind of an indication that maybe even though you think it's differentiated, it's not actually showing up in the numbers that way. And so I definitely encourage people to look for that correlation between retention and feature adoption, choose those features that are the most correlated, and then say, those are the ones that we're really trying to drive people towards. Yeah. So designing for retention is really interesting. And also, I had as a guest recently, Bob Baxley, who's a product designer, who's worked at Apple, now runs design at ThoughtSpot. And it was at Pinterest as well. And one of the things he said is when you build a subscription product, it has to market itself. That's right. The marketing spend is almost inside the product as opposed to outside the product, which I found that really helpful in terms of thinking about the difference in product design and product management for a subscription-based business. So you talk about long-term value creation. What is that and how should one think about measuring it, long-term value? Mm -hmm. Well, I'll give you an example. So we talked a lot just now about feature engagement and adoption and do people actually choose to set their workouts based on recommendations that come from the product? Do they choose to go to bed at the times that are recommended from the Whoop product based on what we've learned about their day and things like that? So it's really good to see that they're using the product on a regular basis. But I'll separate that from things that are not tied to individual features, but are more tied to the goals that your customers have at the outset. And we talked earlier about some of the goals that people might have in terms of trying to lose weight, or they're trying to live longer, or they're trying to 
have better objective performance measures in their athletic endeavors, right? So there's a whole variety of different kinds of things that people are looking to try to get from Whoop. And, and at the end of the day, we try to measure, are they getting it? <laughs> you know, at, at the end of the day, the great thing is these things are highly measurable. If they want to live longer, we know that resting heart rate is inversely correlated with longevity. So basically, the lower your resting heart rate is, it means the fewer heartbeats you have to have to pump the same amount of blood through your veins because your heart's just that much stronger. Okay, strong heart, long life. Like we all kind of know that, right? So we try to measure the impact that we have on resting heart rate for our members over the course of six, 12 months, right? And if we're actually seeing that, if we're actually seeing people getting stronger, healthier, et cetera, then we know that we're doing our job. We know that they're actually getting the results that they came here looking for. If people are getting 20 more minutes of sleep, which is exactly what we see from our members on average when they use Whoop, that's a meaningful impact that's going to help them to have better mental and physical health. So those are the kinds of things that we try to look at. And it's not tied to features, intentionally not tied to features, because otherwise it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I go build a feature, you adopt the feature. Okay, great. I'm measuring the success of that. Well, is that feature actually driving towards the long-term value for your customers that you're trying to get? So I try to encourage every company, and I really talk about this a lot in Build What Matters, to identify not just key outcomes that you look for yourself as a business, revenue, total addressable market, growth rates, things like that, but to define what success looks like purely from your customer's vantage point. What does it look like to them? How would they measure the impact? How would they talk to a friend about why they love the product so much? And it shouldn't be because of specific features and things like that. It should be because of the actual outcomes in their own lives that they're looking to improve. And in a B2B world, what the, you know, the outcomes that that business could improve in terms of maybe relationships that they have with their customers, et cetera. So whatever customer it is that you're trying to serve, identify, really try to get into their head and think about how would they think about the success of this and measure the impact that you have with your own product by whether you're driving those outcomes. And if you do a great job there, it'll make it so much more easy for you to then realize great business outcomes yourself as well. Yeah. I call it forever promise. What is it that they expect from you? I continue paying whoop 30 bucks a month or whatever the price is in exchange for the fact that they help me understand how I'm doing so that I can maximize my potential, mm -hmm. understand my situation and they advise me. And for that reason, I continue to stay with them. And it's, I think something that's also important for people to keep in mind about when it comes to the product is the product has to keep changing to continue to deliver on that promise in the best way possible. And I've had other guests on the show, for example, in the world of news, where young people aren't subscribing to newspapers the way that <laughs> their parents did. And a lot of people, journalists and publishers, and I think they're getting more sophisticated about this, but they used to say, well, that's because young people don't read or young people don't care about understanding the world around them, which is not true at all. I mean, the promise of a newspaper is to help you understand the world around you so you can make better decisions, feel more confident. But what they're saying is, I no longer find that a newspaper is the best way of delivering on that promise, right? And so I think a lot of longstanding companies that have been successful fall into the trap of they create their initial product or their initial experience around a real promise that is, and this is the best way I'm delivering on this promise. But then they stop iterating on the product. They fall in love with their own product. Like you said, they start looking at their own product metrics, which is kind of a circular argument. And somebody else comes up with a better way of solving the problem. And you lose your customers to something that you never saw coming. Yeah. And so 
Whoop is is a very ambitious company. You have a very ambitious goal. Unlocking human potential is no joke. Do you have thoughts about or, or systems in place to continue to take a step back and say, this wearable device or this set of metrics, is this the best way to deliver on human potential? Or are there mm-hmm. things that we should be thinking about incorporating into our subscription that are not necessarily the core skills we have today? Yeah. Some of the metrics that I just described, resting heart rate improvements, heart rate variability improvements, there are all kinds of metrics that are out there that are biomarkers. I mean, the good news is we're working in a space where it's it's quite easy to measure those things and our device naturally measures them on its own, right? So we don't have to go through a bunch of rigorous surveys and things like that to find out whether our customers are getting those benefits. We can actually see it directly within the data itself, which is kind of nice. And a lot of other companies don't necessarily have that benefit. How would a newspaper trying to do research on whether they're helping people to better understand the world around them? How do they measure whether people are actually better understanding the world around them? That seems like a more difficult challenge. It's definitely solvable. I've never yet run into a company that couldn't somehow solve this problem by doing the right kind of customer research and building the right kinds of you know mechanics and metrics around it. But for us, it's relatively easy to do that at Whoop. So I think the key here is actually focus, which is not letting yourself fall into the trap, as you had described, of you build a product as a solution to a problem. And so you can operate in the problem space or you can operate in the solution space. And your product is a solution to a problem that you're trying to address in the market. And what happens is you can be successful to the point that you start to mix up those two things and you measure the success of your solution as opposed to measuring whether you're actually impacting the problem that you're trying to solve for your customers. And I love the way you phrase that when it comes to the newspaper. It's not about how many pages did you read or you know things like that. Because what happens is then you get into Twitter. It's like there are no pages. <laughs> and so you've built the metrics. You've built the whole kind of like model for how you measure and interpret your own success around yourself instead of around your customer. And I think that that's the key is that you never sort of lose sight of the customer orientation on that. So again, it kind of comes back to how would your customers measure impact. And one of the things that's really interesting here is I think that it also evolves, right? Customers' expectations change over time. And often, especially if you're a startup, you may find that you get product market fit and you get the success with a particular group of customers. But what I've found to be the case is that while people talk about product market fit as this binary outcome, either you have it or you don't, the reality is it's never quite as black and white as that. What happens is it's a core group of customers for whom you are the right product and you actually do fit into the, to the kind of problem that they're trying to solve. But as soon as you get that success, what do you start to do as a company? You start to say, well, how do I take this show on the road? How do I expand my market? <laughs> and so as you expand your market, you get people that are further and further on the periphery of what used to be that really central target customer. And now your product market fit maybe isn't as good for them as it was for that core kind of like customer in the beginning. And as you try to go solve problems for those other kinds of customers who might describe their problem in slightly different ways than that core customer, you may realize that you actually lack product market fit. And then even as you solve it for them, you might dilute the quality of the experience that you create for the original core customer. So the reality is these things are always kind of like moving around a little bit. There's always a gray zone when it comes to product market fit. And so I think that it's important to always orient yourself around the customer needs and to be willing to go the extra mile to break down who the different kinds of customers are into personas, into segments, et cetera, and really try to understand in a great level of depth. Your market isn't your market. Your market is a collection of individual customers that all have their own individual needs. And you got to talk to a lot of them to really try to understand 
what's common and what's different across those customer needs. Product market fit is a non-binary metric that's very important. And I think it's especially true with subscription-based businesses because not only are you thinking about new segments and new people that you're trying to reach, but also the people that are your longtime subscribers, their needs change over time. And I think sometimes you can be kind of lulled into a sense, you know, sort of false confidence because of inertia. Once I've made a decision about how I'm going to solve a particular problem, especially with a subscription, I'm less likely to go looking for other solutions. If I read one newspaper, mm-hmm. you know, I'm less likely to be looking for other newspapers to subscribe to. But for the new people, even if they fit the target market, they're still in consumer mode. And so it's really important that you continue to evolve the offering over time for people as they grow and for new people as they come in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'll take it one step further in the technology space, which is that consumers' expectations have shifted such that when I buy a product that is tech-enabled with software and things like that, I actually have now an expectation up front that the software is going to continue to improve over time, which is really kind of interesting, right? I think there's a lot of products 30, 40 years ago. It's like you bought a car and you just sort of thought, okay, the car that I bought works the way that it works. And if I ever wanted to get a different car or I wanted upgrades to that car, I'd have to go buy another car, right? And I'm kind of locked into what I have. But products through technology have become so much more dynamic in this world. You know, somebody buys a Whoop subscription They see the features that they see up front, but there's also a set of expectations that they have that it's going to be an even better subscription down the road. And by not investing in your product and by not sort of improving upon it, not only are you not sort of realizing the possibilities you have of increasing retention and getting a better customer engagement and things like that for those things, you're actually missing the mark literally and on a core expectation that a customer actually has for your product from the outset, which is that it's going to continue to improve and evolve over time as they improve and evolve over time. So consider a Tesla as a car, right? Like in the case you had these physical buttons for listening to music on a car, and now you have like this touchscreen. And so as new music services and things like that come out there, I have an expectation as a Tesla owner that they will integrate with those other kinds of like music subscription offerings. And so I expect it to be up to date all the time. And if it's not, then it's a deficient product in some ways. And I think that it requires us to rethink the role that R&D plays in a company, not just in sort of like creating the next version of a product, but actually satisfying the upfront expectations that a customer has and from the outset. And if you don't meet those things in a subscription business, then you're likely to lose that customer over time. Yeah, that's well said. I think Whoop was the first hardware-software combo product that you've worked on. Is that right? Yeah, that is right. And how is that different when you're thinking about the product, when there's a whole hardware team with something that is probably harder to change, and then you're working in this, I think of the software world as more fast-paced, as you said, continually improving the offering. It's harder to continually improve the hardware. Mm-hmm. How does that change the role of product lead, particularly in this world of subscriptions where the people are expecting it to be current and great and to some extent limited by the hardware that the person's wearing? Mm-hmm. So. A couple of things. One of them is we try to hold true and stay true to our vision of a dynamic product experience that what you're paying for is not the hardware. You're paying for a subscription. You're paying for the coaching and the guidance and the feedback and the information that's provided to you to help you unlock your human performance. And if that requires software updates, 
we'll provide those software updates. And if that requires hardware updates, we will provide those hardware updates. So a good example of this that I think is really unique to Whoop is that we just launched our Whoop 4.0 device. And we didn't say, hey, it's there. Here's all the things that are great about it. It's up for sale. If anybody who's an existing customer wants to upgrade, they can pay us X amount of money to go get it. We just said, as long as you're a Whoop subscriber and you have a future of your subscription in Whoop of six months or more, we're going to send you one for free because that's part of the promise. It's part of the set of expectations. People don't want a device that tracks certain kinds of things and then new sensors come out and new kinds of technologies available to help them better understand their bodies. And because they were a Whoop subscriber, somehow they fall behind. No, it's supposed to be the exact opposite. They're supposed to stay ahead of the game, right? And it's our obligation to innovate on our customers' behalf to make sure that their subscription is always staying up to date and current with the latest capabilities and trends and things like that. So we try to apply that in both the hardware sense and the software sense because we see a subscription as being something that's an umbrella that spans across both. That's the value of a Whoop membership that you're paying for. And it includes, but is not limited to, the device itself. So I think that's kind of like an interesting thing is, is we've actually stayed true to that, where I think there's a lot of other hardware companies that have a subscription component. But if you ever wanted to upgrade the hardware, you're kind of on your own. That's your problem. Right. Starting with your phone and your computer. Yeah. <laughs> I've got all these subscriptions for things, but I still at the same time have to replace the hardware itself on my own dime. Right. And I think that that's to say that the subscription is only layered on top of the device as opposed to the device being embedded as part of that. And we thought that that was sort of like the better approach. So on the one hand, I think a lot of companies think that it forces you to have to think about subscriptions in a different way. I don't think that it actually does. And I think Whoop is a good example of showing this new kind of class of company that can actually provide to you value as a subscription. But there are other companies that do this as well. Even in the B2B world, you you see things like heavy construction equipment and things like that. They used to kind of move towards leases because it was getting closer and closer to that. And now it's like, literally, I think, you know, what Rolls Royce for airlines, I think, has a subscription model for engines. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter whether you have this engine or that engine. The the key is that it actually flies, right? And we're going to keep you flying. You pay us for that, we'll figure out the rest and we'll make that happen. And so I think you're seeing more and more of this kind of like model that's out there, even if it's got a hardware component to it. But what's interesting is in a world that's usually dominated by software, you know, tech companies and, and things like that, is that there's this sense that you could just pivot very quickly and you can be very reactive by building new features in short windows, right? And one of the things that's amazing about software is how quickly you can turn things around relative to hardware. And what's interesting about Whoop is that there is this hardware component. And a lot of times, if there's that dependency between hardware and software, we can't just pivot super quickly in certain cases. Sometimes we can, sometimes it requires a hardware upgrade to go make that happen. I think that on the one hand, that can be frustrating because you just through software alone, I could just solve this problem and that would be it. But if you need another sensor to be out there, then you're going to have to build that into new hardware. And that's one of the reasons that we are committed to continuing to improve our hardware for our members over time. But the other thing that is actually kind of like a silver lining to all this is it is a nice forcing function to make us have to think and never lose sight of that long-term value that we're trying to create for our customers. Because when we think about the software direction that we're having to take, we think about it in conjunction with our hardware strategy. And we think about both of them holistically over the long term. And I think where a lot of other companies maybe make a mistake by being too short-sighted with their software development roadmaps we kind of have this reason that we actually have to think longer term about our software roadmaps in the direction that we're going because of the bundling that kind of comes between software and hardware. The hardware takes so much longer to update and to upgrade. 
So that Mm -hmm. pushes your vision out back to your ways versus Google Maps example from the beginning of our conversation. This kind of forces you to think about the destination while the software has the advantage of it's easy to be iterative, it's easy to tinker, but it kind of pushes you back managing between vision and right next step. Yeah. I'd never thought about that before, but the hardware really does serve a forcing function to help you stay grounded on your bigger vision. Yeah, it really does. Just a note for anybody who's in a startup or, you know, or a founder of a company who's kind of getting started, you're going to always get that advice of you need to pivot, you need to be very reactive to the feedback that you're seeing in the market. And that's all true. But I think one of the things that I've seen time and time again is founders struggle with, is this a pivot that I should make or is this me not staying true to the vision that I had set out with in the first place. And I think that I've seen so many times where people pivot away from what was going to make them successful in the first place. And it's like, sometimes you need to go around obstacles that you run into. And sometimes you need to change direction. And sometimes you need to work through them. And at some point, you're going to have to work through an actual problem that you encounter. And I see a lot of companies that think that like this fail fast mentality is going to serve them really well. But if all you do is fail fast over and over and over, you're very fast running yourself into (laughs) an entire failure with your company. And eventually you're going to have to find a way to succeed and pivoting away from everything that you don't like isn't really going to work. It's almost like continuing to put in ways where it's just like, well, what's just faster going straight left or right. But like if turning left actually takes you backwards, (laughs) even if it's the faster path to go, it's actually taking you farther away from your destination. And you have to have a destination in place to be successful that's where that vision really comes in to be very handy. And I think it's an important tool for any founder to be thinking about. Yeah, that's good advice. So do you have time for a speed round? Of course. (laughs) Sounds fun. (laughs) Okay. First subscription you ever remember using? Ooh, I guess when I was a kid, we had HBO. All right. Subscription that you access today. Most recent subscription you touched. (laughs) I guess we're on a Zoom call right now. So uh, I'm going to go with Zoom. (laughs) A product that you didn't work on that you think is a masterpiece of product management. Ooh. Everybody talks about Apple all the time for this kind of thing, but I'm going to focus on a part that people don't really talk about that much, which is the settings app within your phone is pretty amazing when you think about it. The level of customization of how you want to experience your phone is quite remarkable. The way that you can use Do Not Disturb to make sure that it doesn't impede on your life in certain ways, the way that you can change the language to work in the ways that you want it to, the the way you can get different accents in Siri. (laughs) It's actually quite remarkable, all the different kinds of things that you can do. And being a product guy, I know how complicated it would actually be to provide the wide variety of, if you multiply all the settings differences that are out there, there are so many different configurations that are possible for a phone. It's probably in the millions or billions And yet it works for every single person each time. That's just an incredibly hard problem to solve and one that I think I'm always impressed by. What advice do you have for other manufacturers that are thinking about software-based subscription models? Not just wearables, but the ones making the cars, refrigerators, hammers, furniture, everything. I think the piece of advice that I would give is that you get so much benefit from thinking about things from your customer's vantage point. You have to do that. You have to constantly force yourself every single week to think about it like a customer would think about it. Because if you just try to convert a model of paying for a product upfront to paying for it over a subscription, you're going to think that that's going to be successful and it's probably going to really bite you pretty bad. 
because the product does have to sell itself. The way you market it, the way that people consider interacting with it, the way that they refer other people to it, et cetera, is just foundationally different. And if you don't think about things from a customer vantage point, you're very likely to make the mistake of expecting that people are going to interact with your product in the same way, only to discover that they actually don't. I've seen companies, for example, where they had 80% retention at a three-year mark of using their product when you had to buy it up front. And then they switch to a recurring revenue model and a subscription model, and they see that they change nothing about how the product actually works, and it turns into one year or it turns into six months. And they actually destroy their business because they never put themselves in the perspective of the customer, which is to say, why am I going to continue to pay for this, right? They would continue to use it if it was free incrementally every single month, but they wouldn't continue to pay for it if it cost additional money every single month. And I think that that's a really important part of the story here that you got to consider. Yeah, good advice. If you have a subscription, but it has a three-year term that's mandatory, you don't really know how good your subscription is if you have that protecting you. Month to month is really a way to know how your customer (laughs) feels about your offering. I think that's very wise. So thank you so much. We're at the end of our show. I just want to thank you again, Ben, for being such a great and thoughtful and really articulate and insightful guest. Thank you very much for all that you've shared today. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation and feel like I learned some really good tidbits and some notes that I wanted to take down on paper as well from listening to you too. So thanks so much and thanks for having a great podcast. That was Ben Foster, the Chief Product Officer at Whoop, as well as the co-author of Build What Matters, delivering key outcomes with vision-led product management. For more about Whoop, go to whoop.com. For more about Ben's book and his product management philosophy, go to prodify.group. And for more about subscription stories, as well as a transcript of my conversation with Ben, go to RobbieKelmanBaxter.com slash podcast. Also, if you like what you heard, please go over to Apple Podcasts or Apple iTunes and leave a review. Mention Ben and this episode if you especially enjoyed it. We read all the reviews because we want your feedback. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to Subscription Stories.